We have uh, two quizzes up right now. The third of the iTunes quizzes is up and available. Uh, you probably have to go through the assessments link on, the, on that to click it, uh, to select that. So you'll probably have to go on assessments on D2L, click on quizzes, and the iTunes quiz and quiz six will be, will be in there. They're both available through Monday, so I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more reminder on Monday that those do need to be completed. Uh, if you wanted to do the exam extra credit, one of the extra credit assignments I gave out, uh, creating three questions, one from each of the chapters that's coming up on the exam due here. Uh, that's due on Wednesday of next week, as well as the third article review also due on Wednesday of next week. And homework seven will be due on Friday, next Friday, a week from today. And then the last of the regular exams will be on the following Monday, so a week from Monday. And that will cover chapters 13, 14, and 15. Uh, the other thing is, if you're doing the, cor the course evaluations, the replacement for the SEEKs that are online, I know I think I've gotten three people email me already. Do that, send me the email that you've completed it, and I put the five extra credit points in. So if you've already done it and emailed me, you should see the points. You have to email me because I have no way to see those and see who did them. So you have to tell me that you did it. Yes, ma'am, go ahead, get a question. Is that the one that's due on the 19th? No. That is not due till the 30th when it's due, so it's, it's beyond this. Okay. But I'm just putting it, if you go in and do it, I just don't want people waiting because I'll be able to remind people on the 24th, those who don't show up on the 26th who are taking off, I won't be able to remind you and then it will be, by the time we come back, it's too late. Okay. So I'm trying to remind you just each time I see you, just you know, get it done, you've got a, got a few minutes, go in, fill it out, email me. You gave us a paper for that, right? Yeah, there is one of the papers says that on, says that on it. Any questions on anything up here? All right, well, picture of the day for today. Wasn't sure if we'd get one of these or not, but this is actually a picture from uh, Philae on the comet where it's landed. You can see a little piece of its lander here where it's actually landed and in one of its images of the surface of the comet. Uh, it did land at a little after 11 o'clock as was predicted two days ago on Wednesday. So last class we had, we weren't quite sure how things were going to go. Now we do know that it did land successfully there. Um, we'd asked about batteries. I know we had a question about the battery life and I didn't know the exact numbers. I've looked it up since then. Its batteries were scheduled to last about 60 hours, about two and a half days. It does have solar panels. Unfortunately, where it landed, it's kind of right by a cliff face on this, so it's shielded. So its batteries are not getting charged near enough that it's not going to. So how much longer it will last is a good question. It's been doing the drilling, trying to make drill samples, trying to get everything it can in, and then the hope is that it gets those results and is able to relay them back to Rosetta, the craft that's orbiting around the, the, the comet, before its batteries die. So unfortunately it was hoped if it could land in a good spot, it would be able to use its solar panels to keep the batteries recharging, at least run some instruments minimally, a uh, longer period of time. But as of right now, they're not even sure if they're going to get all of the information that they'd hoped to get out of, their, out of that back. But we'll know in the next couple, of, next couple of days what they're getting back. And of course, what they are getting will be studied for years now. When it landed, it didn't make a nice uh, smooth landing. It actually bounced twice. So it actually did, did one big bounce. I thought this is the one went up back a kilometer up off that, so quite a bounce. Remember, very low gravity, so it doesn't take much to bounce it. You could jump kilometers on this thing, on this thing. 
But it bounced, hit there and bounced up and then did a second bounce and this is where it finally landed. It is near a big wall which shields it and it's not quite straight up and down, it's kind of on an angle. As you might guess just from looking at this, it's not a nice smooth surface. You don't have lots of, lots of area where things are nice and smooth as you have on a lot of the other objects. So. But it is going to keep studying and you get to see some of the detail here of what the image is, what the image looks like. Actually yesterday's, let me go back and go back to yesterday's because that yesterday's was also one from the craft here. Come on. This was during the descent. This is actually during the descent while the lander was coming down towards this and I don't know exactly where on here but in one of these areas it actually landed. So it hit once, bounced, hit again, bounced and eventually ended up not necessarily in this spot, but something very close to one of these where it's very shielded from the sun. So that's going to affect how long the batteries are going to be able to, to last. And the question is right now, we don't know because of how far this is away from the earth, it takes about 30 minutes for the signals to get to us. So if we send it a signal and then wait for it to response, it takes, it takes, an, hour, it takes an hour for it to get there. So like the thing when it landed, it landed, it had been on the surface for 30 minutes before we knew. Because until it could send us back that confirmation, it takes that much time for the signal to travel because this is about, let's see, that would be about four astronomical units from the Earth right now. So three to four astronomical units from the Earth in order to have that kind of time frame. But there's another nice picture, nice picture of it. Looks like a nice snowy landscape here on Earth, maybe almost. Yeah, just what we're looking forward to. Yeah, well, may maybe a couple people are looking. <laughs> There's someone looking forward to it, okay. Uh, but our question, you're looking forward to it or you just got a question? All right. Question. Yeah. How did it miss the giant flat surface there and end up in a crater? How did it miss the giant flat surface there? Yeah, the one well, so it does look so flat, but you have to remember, you're looking at the smallest things you're seeing on this are about three kilometers across, or about two miles across. So missing some of the, we don't know how smooth that is. You're smoothing it out over, two, over miles worth when you've got this little thing that's the size of a dishwasher that lands in there. So it looks nice and smooth from that scale, but when you zoom in, you're actually seeing things more like, because that was the kind of area they were, hoping, they were hoping for. When you actually are down there and a little bit closer to actual size, you know, it's a very, very rough surface. The other thing is it bounced. So if it had landed where it was supposed to land, perhaps, it might have had a better region. But when you bounce up a mile in, up, in this, up above it and then come back down, you know, in a way, you're lucky it didn't flip over. Land, you know, it could have landed on upside down. It could have done lots of other things. So quite lucky the way it did it was able to land and able to get, still be able to get some images there. The harpoons did not work, apparently. It was supposed to harpoon itself in. That did not work. So that's one thing that did not work on the mission, that it was not able to, to grip in there. But it's actually, it is staying on the surface quite well right now. Other questions? No? All right. Well, we'll go from the comet out to the galaxy. I'll jump out to galaxies then. And let's see. We were looking at these last time. I'm going to put these back up again. Um, just to show you, just to kind of start off where we were, I'm not going to give you all the text on it again that I showed you last time, but I'll give you the, the information here. These were the images of spiral galaxies, which was our first type of galaxy that we're going to look at. So 
So that's the first classification of galaxies that we have. They're classified according to the size of their, the bulge. That section around the nucleus, we have the disk around here with all the spiral arms. You've got a large yellowish bulge here, a little bit smaller one here, and almost invisible, buried down deep in here in, in this class. Uh, spiral galaxies are classified as type S. They're S galaxies, S being for spiral. And then they are subdivided by the bulge, size of the bulge. So you would have SA, SB, or SC. The largest bulge and the smallest bulge. So that's how we classify the spiral galaxies. Now there was a question about what our galaxy is like. Our galaxy is a spiral galaxy, but it's not one of these kind of spirals. There's another kind of spiral galaxy, which is where our galaxy fits in. It's a lot harder to determine ours simply because we don't get this kind of view of our galaxy. We're stuck inside it. So trying to make those measurements took us a while, but we also found out that there's another type of galaxy that we see out in space, which is called a barred spiral. Nothing else changes. Except that instead of those spiral arms coming out of the core as they did in the regular spiral galaxies, they come off a bar. There's like a bar of material, not a solid bar as we think of it, not a solid metal bar, but a bar shape of stars that goes through the middle and it comes off of that. These are going to be SB galaxies, spiral galaxies with the bar. Now make sure that differentiates between, there's two SBs there. There's capital S lowercase b, which is a spiral galaxy with a middle size bulge. There is capital B, or capital S capital B, which is a barred spiral galaxy. And we're going to subdivide those the same way. SBA being those barred spiral galaxies with the largest bulges as the one on the left. SBB in between. SBC furthest ones out with the very smallest seen, smallest noticed bulges. Otherwise they're very similar. They have spiral arms. The spiral arms can be you know, wide open as they are in the last one where the spiral arms just kind of tail out there. Uh, they can be very more tightly wound as they are in the first, first image. They have all the other properties of a spiral galaxy. They would have the disk of material, lots of gas and dust, dust in that disk, lots of blue stars. So we see blue stars, we see uh, reddish emission regions, all areas where stars are forming. Any of these spiral galaxies, we see lots of regions where stars are forming. The only difference between these two types is that some have a bar going through the center and some don't. <clears throat> Maybe that's related to how the spiral arms are formed, but since I've already told you, I can't tell you where the spiral, why the spiral arms form in the first place for sure. Why some galaxies have bars and some do not is still a good question. So why are there some galaxies like this? Why does this galaxy, why does our galaxy have a bar and this other galaxy not? 
That's a good question and we just don't understand enough about these galaxies to really be able to understand why they're all that different. Right now we're still really classifying just how they look. This is how the galaxies appear in the sky. And as we see more and more, we hopefully and be able to do some computer simulations. Maybe at some point we can come up with the physical meaning, physical understanding as to why this galaxy or why certain collision of galaxies will form a spiral galaxy why a different type of collision will form a barred spiral. We just don't have that yet. We don't have that understanding yet. So these are, these are spiral or barred spirals. The other t next type of galaxies that we have are elliptical galaxies. Classified as E, E for elliptical. It's making altogether too much sense for us, some of the other classifications we've used. Don't worry, the next one will throw us off a little bit. So, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't continue. But elliptical galaxies are now a completely different type of galaxy. They, have, they are not like a spiral galaxy. These two are very much the same except for the fact that one has a bar through the center and the other does not. The elliptical galaxies are missing the disk. They're missing the spiral arms. Otherwise they'd be a spiral galaxy. Since they're missing the disk and the spiral arms, that means they don't have gas or dust in them. So they don't have stars forming right now. They do not have stars forming in them currently. Right? They must have had at some point in the past because we see stars there. But currently they have no stars. So elliptical galaxies have no star formation, which means no gas or dust. That doesn't mean absolutely zero, there's not a thing. There is some gas and dust, there's some clouds of thinner gas and dust, but nothing thick, not those dark dust clouds that we see in our galaxy. So if you were trying to look through an elliptical galaxy, if we lived in an elliptical galaxy, it would be a lot easier to see. You wouldn't have the dust and gas blocking out your view of the galaxy. You'd be able to see your own galaxy a lot better than you can in a spiral or a barred spiral galaxy. Elliptical galaxies also can really vary in size. Spiral galaxies, they can. You've got some galaxies that are two and three and four times bigger than others. But they're pretty close. Relatively speaking, you might have something that's five times bigger or you know, a quarter the size, but you don't have a big range. Elliptical galaxies come in a tremendous variety of sizes. You can have giant ellipticals that dwarf our galaxy and you can have little tiny ones that aren't even close. Yes, ma'am? That mm -hmm. How large is our galaxy? Our galaxy is about a typical for a spiral galaxy. Andromeda is a little bit bigger. But it's I mean, compared, to, compared to the largest ellipticals, it's nothing. It would be dwarfed by them. And compared to some of the small ones, it dwarfs them. So it's, it's in between, kind of like our sun. But for a spiral galaxy, we're relatively, relatively typical. <laughs> But you can have those galaxies, you can have ellipticals that have trillions of stars, you know, not just hundreds of billions of stars, but many times they could be, you know, have ten times the amount in gigantic galaxies. You can also have dwarf elliptical galaxies, which are very tiny. Maybe only a million stars. We're getting down to the size of a globular cluster. In fact, a globular cluster looks a lot like a very tiny elliptical galaxy. 
It's got the same properties. It's very old. It's got no spiral arms. It's got no disk. It's just a blob of stars that formed uh, many billions of years ago and it's still there. The big difference between the two is the spiral, the elliptical galaxy is um, a big blob. It can be a big ball of stars. It could be a spherical, spherical shape which we classify as E0. Think of it as a great big sphere of stars. So a big ball, big basketball, big beach ball, something, you know, something very spherical. Essentially a big glob of stars like that. Some of the largest stars, some of the largest galaxies are that, are that shape. And that goes all the way down to a flattened galaxy is classified as E7. Flattened in terms of elliptical galaxies does not mean it has a disk. So it's not like these types of galaxies. It doesn't get that flat. You can think of our galaxy as flattening down you know, to a pancake shape, really, really thin. These go from maybe a basketball to you know, a football shape. So it's squished down but it's not flattened. It's not completely flat. It still has some thickness to it. And those are the differences that we see, and that's how we classify the elliptical galaxies, is by their shape. How round are they? If they're completely spherical, they're E0. A little bit more flattened would be E1, and so on down to E7 is the most flattened ones that we see. So classified differently than we classify the spirals. The spirals were classified by the size of their bulge. Elliptical galaxies having completely different properties have to be classified a different way. And we classify them by their shapes and that's how they appear to vary. Looking at a couple images here, here's a couple pictures of them. Um, E0 would be completely spherical. This is an E2 so it's a little bit flattened but almost completely spherical. E3 is a little more. E5 even more flattened. But you'll get down to about that football shape, the E7s, that's about as, as flat as they, as they get. So there's definitely a difference between these different types of galaxies. We don't see spiral galaxies that have a lot of material spreading out away from the disk. We don't see elliptical galaxies that have really all their material concentrated to a disk. So it seems that when a galaxy forms, one of these two things is going to happen to it. Either it's going to collapse and form a disk, as the spiral galaxies do and leave some gas and dust behind to form stars or it's not going to do that at all. It's not going to collapse down to a disk. It's going to have all of its stars form at once. That was, must have happened with the elliptical galaxies. All the stars had to form. I say no star formation. I probably should say that's current. You know, right now there's no star formation but in the past there would have been. Yes ma'am. Currently, yes. Okay. I want to make sure because there, there had to be at some point in the past. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. What is causing it to emit that light? The stars that formed a long time ago. So essentially what you can think of is that spiral galaxies, a lot of stars formed, but it left enough gas and dust behind that stars can still conform continuously over 10 billion years. In an elliptical galaxy, all the stars formed at once. So whatever happened when galaxies collided to form this elliptical, all the gas and dust got converted to stars at once. And it formed them all. It formed all those stars 15 billion years ago, 10 billion years ago. What's happened over that time? 
Well, the most massive stars on the main sequence have run through their lives and disappeared. There's still lots of stars left. If the galaxy is, say, 12 billion years old, any, any star that lasts longer than 12 billion years is still there. That's all the light we're still seeing, is all the light from all of those stars. And those ones that have become red giant stars, these galaxies look very red when we look at them. We see lots of red giant stars because the brightest stars in them are those that are at the end of their lives, not at the beginning as we see in the spiral galaxies. So it's not that there's no star formation. That's why I wanted to kind of qualify that. There, I there was star formation. There just isn't currently. They haven't formed stars in the last few billion years. Yes? Would that make these galaxies the oldest galaxies in the universe? Not necessarily. They are old in terms of when their stars formed, but our, our Milky Way is also 10 billion years old. It just formed differently. There's something in the formation when the galaxies form that either causes all the gas and dust to be used up at once or leave some behind. In these cases of the spiral galaxies, the way, they, the way they form it leaves some gas and dust behind that can still form stars. So it's not that they're the oldest galaxies. They're just ones that have, in their formation process, which we'll talk about in the coming chapters a little bit, have used up all their gas and dust right away. So they went through all that, they had all this gas and dust, they used it up, they formed all their stars. Now they're just sitting there watching their stars slowly die. Whereas the spirals held on, saved some gas and dust. Yeah? Do we have any idea what caused trillions of stars to form at once? Uh, most likely a collision of galaxies. So if depending, and that's what we think is the spiral structure may form through galaxy collisions. Um, the, you know, so maybe a large collision of two big galaxies just smashes everything together. You get this a tremendous burst of star formation, and then it's done. And we do see galaxies that are undergoing bursts of star formation you know, in the distant past. Now we can see that. You remember we talked about, we talked about Philae. We see, we see Philae as it was 30 minutes ago. We see these galaxies as they were millions or billions of years ago. We don't know what they look like right now because that light hasn't reached us yet. If a galaxy like Andromeda, that's the close one, is two and a half million light years away, we see it as it was two and a half million years ago. What does it look like today? Two and a half million years for a galaxy probably hasn't changed a whole lot. But when we start talking about these galaxies that are a billion light years away, or five billion, or ten billion, they could have changed significantly over that time. We can't see that. We can wait. If we can sit here and twiddle our thumbs for 10 billion years for that light to slowly make its way to us, then we'll be able to see what they're like today. But of course, that'll be 10 billion years from now. So that's one of the big problems is that we can't see them as they are now, especially the further back we look, the older we're seeing them. So those are the ellipticals. The next one we see, the next classification, that's three. We've got two more classes, is what we call the lenticulars. No, they're not class L's. That would make too much sense. These are actually class S0 or SB0. Got to have one there just to keep you on your toes. And compared to some of the other classifications I give you, these, this is one of the better ones in terms of fitting in. They're classified as S0 or SB0. These are the galaxies that are in between a spiral and an elliptical. They, can ha they have a disk. They are flattened to a disk. That's why they're kind of classified like spiral galaxies. An S or an SB, meaning that they can have a bar going through them. But 
So they are disk galaxies, but they have no gas or dust. So they're kind of a combination between the two. They're flattened to a disk. So somehow they formed a disk, but they never formed spiral arms. They used up all their gas and dust in their formation. So they look like big blobs, but they're actually flattened down to that pancake shape that a spiral galaxy is, but without the spiral arms, without the gas and the dust. So they have nothing in between there. They're, they're like an elliptical galaxy in that they're not forming any stars right now. They obviously, again, they did in the past, but they are not forming any, any stars now. But they're like a spiral galaxy in terms of their shape without the spiral arms. So no spiral arms, flat, but a flattened disk. So kind of in between the two. These are kind of a cross in between that they have properties of elliptical galaxies and that they have no gas and dust. They have properties in spi spiral galaxies in terms of their shape. So that's, those are the lenticulars galaxies. And the final type is irregular galaxies. Not an I either. They actually call them IRR for irregular. Still not too bad. So the only ones you've got to try to remember are the lenticulars have a different classification name, the S0 or the SB0. Those are the only other ones. Everything else is pretty much relatively easy to remember in that ellipticals are E's, spirals are S's, barred spirals, SB's, irregulars, IRR. And irregular galaxies are simply that. They have no specific pattern. So no specific pattern. They don't look like a big ball of stars. They don't look like a disk of stars. They don't look like spiral arms. They're just a complete uh, irregular mass of stars. Here's a couple examples of them. Um, one example would be, which is not pictured here, is the Large Magellanic Cloud is an irregular galaxy, one of the satellites of our own. This one is irregular. It's a nice ring galaxy here. So an interesting pattern there that has formed. Very blue. If we see blue in terms of stars in a, in a galaxy, that means they're young. The blue stars don't live very long. So if we, see, we don't see them in an elliptical galaxy, if we see them here, they had to have formed in the last few million years. Does that mean that they just haven't gotten their shape yet? It could be. They're also very small galaxies. There's, there's two things. They could have, they could be in the process. They could be this, and in fact this is what we think now, is that this is how galaxies begin to form. They form as these irregular type galaxies, just a blob of stars with no specific pattern. Over time they collide together and how they collide seems to mean they either go this way or that way or the lenticular. Depending on how they collide, how big they are, how many of them collide, they can then change from an irregular galaxy, which is what we see when we look back to the very depths of the universe, the very earliest galaxies forming, Hubble looks back at those, they all look, there's so many irregular galaxies compared to what we see today. So we think that that's how the galaxies, our galaxy would have started out as an irregular galaxy. But over time, many of those combining together build it up into its spiral structure. So these are proto-galaxies? Some of them could be. They could form into bigger galaxies. Some of them have survived. Some of them never collided and they're still here with us. Some of them are actually results of collisions. This likely is not how a galaxy formed as a nice little ring. That is probably more like a splash that occurred as another galaxy went through it. 
Right? So throw a rock in the water, it splashes material out. Well, if you throw a galaxy through another galaxy, they just pass through each other. There's so much empty space. But gravitationally, they do affect it. And that, this is probably what happened here. So all those stars formed as those gas clouds actually combined together. But we do see that. We see some of the irregulars actually show interactions. We, still, we see lots of evidence of collisions of galaxies. Yes? Do these uh, galaxies still have the black hole in the center? Um, they, they would. I don't know what happens with the one big one there, but something like this could have a black hole at the center. Not as necessary on these just because they're rather small. That black hole may form after the first couple of collisions. Some of these small ones do. Something like that, that black hole may have already coalesced into with the other galaxy. Do these and three have it? Any of the other ones would, yes. Elliptical galaxies, some of those elliptical galaxies would have very massive black holes. Some of those real big ones. Lenticular galaxies could, sparred spirals. Irregulars can, but it really depends on how big and how, you know, how big they are really. So let's summarize them here. The table from the textbook just kind of breaks down all the different classifications for the spiral, the, bars, the ellipticals, and the irregulars. And these are all the ones that have a disk. Some of them have a bar, the barred spirals. The disks are young and old stars. The halo is only the old stars. So remember the halo we had around our galaxy? That halo is much like an elliptical galaxy. So it may be something in how our galaxy formed early on that galaxies, when they first start forming, if they continue along that initial process, which was forming those stars in the halo, they might eventually become an elliptical galaxy because that leaves only the old stars. Somehow when they collapse down to the disk, some of that gas and dust manages to survive. And not just survive for a little while, but survive and slowly form stars over many billions of years. So we still see our galaxy formed 10 billion years ago. 10 billion years later, we're still seeing stars forming. We still see lots of gas and dust. Elliptical galaxies really are much like the halo of our galaxy. Think of that big, big spherical blob of stars surrounding us. It's only the old stars. They have random orbits. They're just orbiting around any which direction they like. No star formation recently, which is the same as our halo. So very similar to the halo. So an elliptical galaxy is like just the halo. All you've got is the halo of the galaxy. And nothing ever collapsed down to form a disk. Irregulars, again, are just those blobs. There are some, there are different, they do subdivide into irregular one, irregular two. I'm not going into all that. Some of them are ones that look like they've collided together and that's why they're irregular because they've collided and that's completely changed their shape and distorted any spiral structure that was there or any elliptic. It's just all messed up because of the collision of two galaxies. We do see in these star formation, we see gas and dust in them. And as I said, these are the ones that we think galaxies originally formed from. We think that the irregulars formed early on after the Big Bang. And then as they collided together, elliptical or spiral galaxies really depend on how how the collisions went. Yes, ma'am? With the lenticular mm -hmm. galaxies, you say that they're disk galaxies. They're, just, they're, they're, flat. they're flat. Um, if we were to look at one on the side of mm -hmm. this, would we not necessarily be able to see it? They're not. They're, they're flattened like our own galaxy. You'd be able to see it, but it would look, you know, you would look something like, 
You'd see the disk of material, you'd see a bulge at the center, you'd see it, if you were looking at it, Ed John, there'd be some thickness to it. If I were looking at an elliptical galaxy of one of the, I'd see a blob like that. So there's, there's, a, there's a distinction that, you know, they're not just E8, E9, E10, they're significantly flatter, they actually flatten down. These are, you know, still significantly thick compared to, you know, how wide this is compared to how wide this is. You know, those are flattened down to pancake. Would they completely disappear? No, not like Saturn's rings would completely disappear. So closer to a lenticular. Our galaxy? Yeah. Our galaxy, no, spiral. Well, I know it's a spiral, oh, but yeah. in, in shape-wise, when it comes to the A shape. spiral galaxy would look just like this. The difference with the spiral galaxy is that you'd see gas and dust in it. So you'd see all those dust lanes and all this would be blocked out because there's so much dust there. It's harder to see. But, you'd, but the shape-wise, it would look exactly the same. There would be no difference between those. We know we're not on lenticular because we do have stars forming. The lenticular would have no star formation currently going on. Now, if we want to group these stars together, uh, this is how uh, Edwin Hubble put them together as a way to remember the galaxies. Originally, this was thought this may be what happened to galaxies. That galaxies actually changed from one type into the other. That you could have galaxies that could go from a spherical galaxy perhaps down to a disk galaxy and then form spiral arms. And then the spiral arms would slowly change and diffuse out to an irregular galaxy. So originally this was thought of as maybe this is how galaxies form. Now I've already kind of jumped ahead and told you from a couple chapters ahead how we think galaxies form today. The other problem with this is trying to do this is if you remember, this had no gas and dust, no gas and dust, no gas and dust. You could still see this happening. Could this could the collapse down? Could something happen that causes it to collapse? That makes sense. The jump is here. How do you go from a nice disk galaxy with no gas and dust to all of a sudden having gas and dust? That would be tough to do. Or how do you go the other way? Can you go from the one with all the gas and dust to this one? Yeah. Right? I mean, use up all the gas and dust, it's gone. Does, it, does this fade in and become a lenticular? But you can't go this way then. You're not going to have this real flat galaxy all of a sudden puff up and expand. Collapsing makes sense. Expanding like that would not. Why would the galaxy all of a sudden be pushing itself apart? Why would it go from being a flattened disk into a spherical blob? So nowadays we use Hubble's diagram called the tuning fork diagram as sort of a way to remember them. It puts the two spirals, galaxies here on each end of the tuning fork, the lenticulars right at the joining here, and then the elliptical galaxies further out. But it really doesn't have any other meaning uh, to us now. Um, yeah. You said that it would make no sense for it to spread out. What to expand out into a sphere. If you, it would be like our, our solar system. You've got all the planets orbiting in a disk. You wouldn't expect over time that all of a sudden Neptune would start orbiting this direction while the Earth stays this way, you know, they wouldn't change their orbits like that. What I was going to say is you got a galaxy like the elliptical, which is mm -hmm. closed. Um, what if one of those supermassive black holes were to go supernova, like a giant supernova, and it pushed everything out? If you were to have, I mean, let's go with a collision because you can't really do anything with a black hole like that. But if you just say you collided the galaxies together, you could disrupt some of their orbits. I mean, it's possible, but you wouldn't, what you wouldn't expect is for it to go all of a sudden from this to slowly progress. It wouldn't be a progression. You might get a collision that would take it up to a little bit, distort the orbits a little bit. Not all that likely. 
Not as likely, though, from what we understand right now. Okay. All right. Now, we've got to work on distances again. So how do we measure distances? We looked at Cepheids. And we got out to 25 million parsecs, about 75, 80 million light years. Well, that's our, ne that's our neighborhood for galaxies. That's the galaxies nearby to us. So the Cepheids help us to nearby galaxies, uh, much as using you know, parallax helped us to the nearby stars. It didn't help us with stars across the galaxy, but the, near, the ones near to us, within a few hundred light years, it helped. Cepheids do the same thing. They help us to the nearby galaxies. And in fact, that's how we actually discovered less than 100 years ago that galaxies were galaxies. Now, 100 years ago, this class, you wouldn't have known what galaxies were. It was still hotly debated as to whether they were other galaxies like ours or whether they were part of our own galaxy. It was when Edwin Hubble, right, just saw his tuning fork diagram, actually discovered Cepheid variables in the Andromeda galaxy he was able then to make a measurement of distance and find out that it's most definitely well outside of our own galaxy, showing that galaxies were really galaxies and not just a parts of our own galaxy, which before that was what they would have been. Could it one thing they were considered? Yes? What do you mean by variables? are those variable stars we talked about in the last chapter that change in their brightness. They change in brightness and that's related to their distance. It was one of our distance measurements. So we're going to have two new distance measurements, and that's what I'm going to talk about here. There, are, there is the Tully-Fisher relation, which relates how fast a galaxy rotates, how fast it spins, to how bright it is. Turns out that the speed with which a galaxy rotates changes, and there's a relationship between that and how bright it is. So that's nice for astronomers because the rotation speed is easy to measure, right? For a Doppler effect. You can get the Doppler effect measuring them to move them. Measures the galaxy and we can figure out how fast it's rotating relatively easily. If there's a relationship between that and the brightness, then we can get, then we are able to get its luminosity. If we can figure out its luminosity, much as we did this with stars on the HR diagram. Once we classified a star, figured out what class it was, we could get its real brightness and figure out its distance. Now we know here for a spiral galaxy that's rotating like this, we can figure out its rotation speed, we can measure that, and we can then get its luminosity. If we know its luminosity, then we can figure out how far, we can figure out how far away it is. Luminosity, how bright it truly is. Um, apparent magnitude, how bright it appears to be in the sky and we can determine a distance. So that's one way to get the distances. The other thing that is very much the same that we use that really helps us get further out in the universe is a type 1 supernova. Now remember we had type 1, type 2. Type 2 was a massive star, built up iron in its core and became unstable and ripped itself apart. Those can be all different. You could have a star that's maybe 50 times the mass of the sun, maybe one that's 40, maybe one that's 30, maybe one's 35, and they all might be a little bit different in terms of brightness. Type 1 supernovae, on the other hand, are pretty much exactly the same. Doesn't matter where they form because they're all forming from exactly the same type of star. It is a white dwarf star, right? Got too much matter and started nuclear reactions throughout it and ripped it apart. Well, all of those white dwarfs to do that, not just any white dwarf can do that, 
but only one that is exactly at its limit, exactly at its mass limit. So every type 1 supernova is a white dwarf star that was 1.4 times the mass of the sun. We know exactly how bright, how big that star was before. Unlike the type 2, there might have been some variation, maybe some are twice as massive as the other, and maybe that changes how bright the, the star will be, how bright the supernova will be. But type 1 supernovae, if we see one occur, and we can measure the distance to one, then all of a sudden we've got the distances to every single one. That might sound a lot like the RR Lyrae stars I mentioned. Remember in the globular clusters? We said that once we identified an RR Lyrae star, we saw it varied with a period of about half a day to a day. Once we identified one, we knew how bright it was going to be. They were all the same brightness. The type 1 supernova is the same. Once we identify a, a supernova as a type 1, which we can do from its spectrum, um, I think we had a homework question on that. We had to look at the different spectra of them and or talk about the differences between them. One of the differences is that type 1 supernovae have no hydrogen in their spectra. So you can actually look at the spectrum and very easy to tell which kind it is very early on. So once we identify one as a type 1 supernova, then we can figure out its distance. So we need these two. This is showing uh, the Tully-Fisher relation. How do we actually measure that? Well, you have part of the galaxy coming towards us for a very distant galaxy, part of it moving away. So if we have a large galaxy, we can measure it. We can put our spectrum right here and measure the shift. We can measure it here, we can measure it here. Part of that galaxy is approaching us, it's rotating towards us. That's going to blue shift all of the spectral lines. Part of that galaxy is not moving, it's staying still pretty much still relative to us. That's going to stay right in the middle, not a sh no shift. And part of it is moving away from us. So there's actually going to be a red shifted portion. Now, if the galaxy is moving on top of that, there's an extra motion involved, but we're not going to worry about that for right now, that's coming up. Uh, but what we see, if we have a big enough, close enough galaxy, we can measure it like this. As the galaxies get further and further away, they get to be tiny little specks out there that you can just barely see as a galaxy. And you can't, you can't measure this portion of it and this portion of it separately. You measure the whole thing at once. So what the astronomer really sees is that the line gets spread out. You add up these three lines together. And that's what the astronomer sees. They see this line plus this line plus this line all together plus all the different regions in between. And it serves to spread out the line. So instead of getting a nice, well-defined spectral line, it gets spread out. And the more it gets spread out, the faster the galaxy is spinning. So the faster it spins, the more spread out that galaxy gets. And that's related to the brightness. The faster it's spinning, the brighter the galaxy is actually going to be. So we can make that measurement. We can look at how stretched out the lines are. And that gives us a way now to measure a distance. So we put these on. We're really going to jump up our distance ladder. We're almost to the last step, actually. We were way back down here. We had the radar. We had stellar parallax and spectroscopic parallax. Last chapter, we added in variable stars, which got us out to 25 million parsecs, 80 million light years or so. Tully-Fisher, the rotation of the spiral galaxies, might get us out to 200 million parsecs, 600 and some million light years. Things like the type 1 supernovae, can get us out to a billion parsecs, a little over 3 billion light years. Sounds like we're really, really getting out there now, except 
the galaxy in size is about 13, 14 billion light years across. We're getting out to 3 billion. So 3, 3 billion out of 13, that's a pretty good, that's about a quarter of it. So if you imagine, we've got this little tiny sphere here. That's what we can measure using supernovae. Why can't we use them further out? Can't see them. They're too faint. And you've got something four times that size that is the entire universe. So there's still a lot of the universe that we can see, but we cannot measure distances to yet. We do not have enough, uh, have a way to get those distances. But we're getting a lot better. We're a lot better than we were just stuck right in here with our own galaxy. And we got one more to put on there at the top that will actually fill out the rest of it. Yes, ma'am? It may be a question that you probably can't really answer. I'll try. Good question, and it is tough to answer. The universe is not considered to have an end to it. No matter what shape they consider an open or a closed universe, which is actually one of the last chapters we'll talk about, but even if it's a closed universe, there's not an edge to it that we can ever see. Similarly as the Earth. If you're stuck on the surface of the Earth and you want to walk, how far could you walk and when are you going to get to the edge of the Earth? You're not. The universe could be the same thing, but one dimension up. In three dimension into four dimensions, all of a sudden your mind starts to hurt. <laughs> right. Do they feel that there's multiple universes then? That's a possibility as well. Could we just be one part of a little universe? We can only see our section. Anything further than 13 some billion years away from us, we can't see because the light hasn't had time to get to us yet. So the, could there be other universes that we just can't act? That's quite, it's, yes, that's where it, <laughs> you've got, you got two more chapters. We've got to go through chapter 16 before we get to that. So we'll be getting to that right, we'll start it, probably start it right before Thanksgiving. All right, so distribution of galaxies in space. We started out looking, we looked at this with stars after we talked about stars. Now we're jumping outward. There's our Milky Way galaxy. And these are the nearby galaxies to us. Lots of dwarf galaxies. Those are some of those dwarf elliptical galaxies, really tiny ones, and they orbit around our Milky Way. Um, the Large Magellanic Cloud, down here visible in the southern hemisphere, these are actually orbiting very slowly around the Milky Way galaxy. So they orbit around us in a similar way that the planets orbit around the sun or comets orbit around the sun. They orbit around our own galaxy. We zip a little bit further out. These are the ones within about a million parsecs, within a few million light years. That gets to us. And that gets out to the Andromeda galaxy out here. Uh, that's the nearest real large galaxy to our own. These ones, the two Magellanic clouds, are easily visible with the naked eye as long as you're south of the equator. So don't go out looking for them tonight. You're not going to see them. And you can wait all year and whenever to look. You're not going to see them from our location. They're too far south in the sky. But you can see them if you go down to Australia, South America, you can see them very easily. And they're very prominent in the sky there. The Andromeda galaxy you can see with your naked eye, barely. If you have a dark sight, you can. If you know where to look, you can pick it out. It's not going to look like that. It's going to look like a little fuzzy patch in the sky. And if you try staring right at it, it'll disappear. Because your eyes aren't sensitive when you look straight, aren't sensitive to little diffuse objects like that. But if you look away from it, you can sometimes catch it out of the corner of your eye. If you know exactly where to look. But it is that bright. Even though this thing is two and a half million light years away, we can still see it from Earth without a telescope. With a telescope or binoculars, you can see it much easier. So these are how the galaxies are spread out. 
we're starting to group them together. You see that they're kind of grouping together into little clusters of galaxies. So we had star clusters. Galaxies tend to group into clusters as well. And this is the first cluster we'll look at. This is actually called our local group. And that is our cluster of galaxies. It includes three big galaxies. Ours, the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, and another spiral galaxy off close to Andromeda called M33. If we add all of them up, there's about 45 galaxies there. There's three big spiral galaxies and lots of little tiny dwarf galaxies and irregular galaxies. No, no big elliptical galaxies in our local group. Lots of them nearby. We'll see some others later on. But this is what we call a cluster of galaxies. This is a very small, this is an incredibly small cluster by comparison to some of the ones we'll talk about. It's only 45 galaxies. Even though when you think about that, you know, Andromeda Galaxy is a little bit bigger than our own. So for every star in the Milky Way, there's one in Andromeda. M33 is a little bit smaller. The other ones, you know, tiny by comparison. But that's lots and lots of stars out there. And we're talking about an extremely tiny galaxy cluster, very they were all only the galaxies that are closest to us. Most of those, like the stars, most of those stars that were close to us, we wouldn't have been able to see if they were further away. Same thing with these galaxies. If we look at more distant galaxies, we would not be able to see a lot of those little irregulars, little dwarf ellipticals. You know, they wouldn't be able to see, be seen close to another galaxy far away. They'd get blurred out by its light. They'd be just too faint. But we're going to see that galaxies do group into these clusters, and then clusters actually group into clusters. So you not only get clusters, but you get clusters of clusters of galaxies. So galaxies tend to form into these great big groups. And let me see, did I give you? Let me just go ahead out to Virgo here. This is the, I'll finish up here. This is the next big galaxy, next big giant galaxy cluster. Much, a little bit larger than our galaxy cluster. We had 45 galaxies. This has about 3,500. So 3,500 galaxies. This is not by far, by near the biggest cluster, and these clusters group into other things. This is only one small part of the sky over towards the constellation of Virgo, which has over several thousand galaxies in it. M87 is the great big elliptical galaxy at the center of that, and that is many times the size of our own Milky Way, plus plenty of other galaxies. We zoom in here, you know, each of these dots you're looking at, many of those are actually galaxies themselves. So you're seeing all of these different galaxies, some that are bigger, some that are smaller, but lots of different galaxies that are out there. That's a much larger group than our own, a larger cluster, you know, almost 100 times the size of our cluster in terms of just the number of galaxies that it shows. So let me, yep, that's where I want to finish next time, so that's good. We'll do Hubble's Law next time and finish up, uh, finish up on that. So any questions? Otherwise, I'll have to take a little break here and I'll get ready for lab and we're going to be doing the solar observations. So I'm going to have you go through the calculations and graphs. I'm going to do the examples up here on the board and have you work through all that coming up here in about 10 minutes or so.